sons in Canaan. And the focus squarely became on Joseph's rise to power in the Egyptian empire. At the start of chapter 39, Joseph is a slave, a nobody. But by the end of chapter 41, he is second only to Pharaoh, the second most powerful man in the land. What a transformation this was. The following three chapters, 42, 43, and 44, which we will review today, bring the brothers and Jacob back into the story. And in this section, focuses on their transformation. We have seen the change in Joseph's status from slave to prime minister. During this time in Joseph's life, what's been happening back at home amongst dad and the sons in Canaan? In chapter 2, we read that the famine was severe everywhere. And in order for people to survive, they were required to travel to Egypt because in Egypt there was provision of grain. So ten of Joseph's brothers take the journey. Jacob, however, withholds Benjamin, his remaining and youngest son, born to the love of his life, Rachel. After all this time, Rachel's son is still the favoured one. Jacob hasn't stopped playing favourites. Are the brothers still jealous to the point of murder? Time will tell. Joseph's brothers arrive in Egypt and come before Joseph, bowing before him for the first of four times. His dream is being fulfilled. Joseph immediately recognises his brothers, but they don't recognise him. He walks like an Egyptian. Joseph sees this as an opportunity to test his brothers and see if they have changed. He accuses them of being spies. They deny the claim, saying that they are honest men. They explain that, in fact, there were 12 brothers, one who is no more and one who is back home with their father in Canaan. Joseph's heart just yearns and longs to see his full brother, Benjamin. And so he uses this information as an opportunity to test whether or not, in fact, his brothers are honest as they say they are. If you really are not spies and are honest men, then go back to your father and bring your younger brother, Benjamin, for me to see. Joseph then sends them into prison for three days to have a think about this. Upon their release, Joseph decides to keep one brother as a ransom. In verse 21, they acknowledge their guilt and see that this is punishment for what they did to Joseph all those years ago. Clearly, the guilt of that event had not left them. They still very much carried it with them in their hearts. And this causes Joseph to weep privately because he is starting to feel acknowledged. Simeon is taken captive, and they are sent off with the silver, which was to pay for the grain back in their bags. When they arrive home, Jacob is distraught. Joseph's already gone. Now Simeon's gone. His sons could be accused of stealing silver, and now they want to take Benjamin away. 
This is just all too much. Chapter 42 concludes with Jacob feeling miserable and distraught. We now arrive at chapter 43, and Anna will come and read to us from verses 1 to 14. Thanks, Anna. Genesis 43. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, The man warned us solemnly, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. Because the man said to us, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How are we to know, he would say, bring your brother down here. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm and a little honey, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. This is the word of God. What's going to happen to Benjamin? This is the question that the reader is left with. Benjamin, however, through this entire narrative, will remain silent. He's like a pawn. He never speaks. There's all this talk of him, but he never speaks. Who does end up speaking the most, and in fact become the central figure in these three chapters, is Judah. Judah has come a long way from his earlier antics of chapters 37 and 38. In case you had forgotten, Judah is the guy who suggested that the brothers sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites, acknowledging that Joseph was indeed their own flesh and blood. In spite of his efforts uh, to spare Joseph's life, he was still part of the cover-up of Joseph, causing his father Jacob Tremendous grief and heartache. 
But it's really chapter 38 where we see Judah's character coming to the fore, and it's far from exemplary. He is dishonest, deceptive, and judgmental. However, now it is Judah who personally guarantees the safety of Benjamin. Left with no option, Jacob agrees for Benjamin to go and sends gifts, including double the silver, in case they are accused of theft from their prior visit. When the brothers appear before Joseph a second time, he is so thrilled that they have brought Benjamin, he decides to host them to lunch in his own home. To invite people into your own home, to a meal, to sit around the table, is a sign of ultimate acceptance and welcome. However, the brothers do not see it this way. They are concerned and frightful, fearing they might be persecuted from taking silver the last time that they visited. Immediately, they wanted their conscience cleared, so they present Joseph with double the amount of silver um, and apologising for any misunderstanding or for any mistake. Joseph assures them that this, in fact, was a gift from God and that the silver had come from him. An Egyptian official acknowledging the Hebrew God. Odd. Simeon is reunited with his brothers. They bow before Joseph again, and Benjamin's presence brings Joseph to private tears. He has to remove himself yet again to cry. The table is set, and the brothers are seated in birth order. In this culture, and Benjamin is given five times the amount of food and drink as his brothers. In this culture, it was always the eldest brother that received preferential treatment, that was given special privileges, certainly not the youngest. Another clue that something unusual is going on here. Will this favoritism stir up their jealousy and lead the brothers yet again to abandon Rachel's remaining son, their half-brother. Time will soon tell. For now, they feast and drink together merrily. After a night of food, wine and fellowship and reuniting with their brother Simeon, Joseph instructs his steward to fill the 11 brothers' bags with grain, return the silver, the double silver that they'd brought in their sacks for their journey home. He also cunningly plants his silver cup into Benjamin's bag. Joseph plans on incriminating Benjamin as a setup to see how the brothers respond. Will they abandon Benjamin like they abandoned him? Not long after the brothers are sent on their way home, Joseph sends the steward after them to accuse them of theft. As to be expected, the brothers deny this accusation. There must be some misunderstanding. Of course we would not do that. We brought back double the silver to you. Why on earth would we be motivated to steal from you, they say? Well, the steward searches each of the brothers' bags, from eldest to youngest, and surely enough, the cup was in Benjamin's bag. At this alarming discovery, the brothers all tear their clothes, a sign of pure, unguarded grief 
loss and devastation. Their actions are now speaking louder than their words. They remain united and refuse to give up Benjamin for their own freedom, returning to face Joseph back in Egypt. For the fourth time now, they find themselves at the mercy and in a posture of servitude to their brother, literally throwing themselves at his feet. Judah, speaking on behalf of his brothers, accepts that they are all Joseph's rightful slaves now. In verse 16, Judah pleads, What can we say to my Lord? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. The weight of guilt is overwhelming. Judah, in this moment, is not referring to the silver cup. Because he and his brothers know that they are innocent of this crime. The guilt of betraying Joseph has become too much. And they now truly believe that God's judgment has fallen upon them and caught up with them. And Judah knows that they are all deserving of punishment, even if they are innocent of this particular crime. Well, Joseph refuses to accept all the brothers as slaves and only wants Benjamin. And this becomes the catalyst for Judah's impassioned speech. Judah's speech, which extends from verse 18 to verse 33, is the longest speech in the book of Genesis. And it marks a very distinct turning point in this story. During the first part of the plea, so in verses 19 to 29... Judah more or less recounts all the events that have happened in the prior chapters that we've been talking about this morning. Judah then explains the devastating effect of not returning with Benjamin will have on their father Jacob. Judah's concern is not for himself. It's not really even for his brother Benjamin. His concern is for, remember who this story ultimately is about? Jacob. His concern is for Jacob, his father. In his speech, he uses the word father 14 times and mentions that on four occasions, that if he does not return with Benjamin, his father will die. Clearly, Judah's heart is now turned towards his father. At one point, his heart had turned away from his father when he betrayed his brother. But now his heart has turned toward his father. He explains to Joseph that he had taken personal responsibility for Benjamin's safety and could not bear to return to his father without Benjamin. In verses 33 to 34, he pleads with Joseph. Now then... Please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come to my father. Judah is making good on the promise he made to Jacob in chapter 43 verse 9 where he said, I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible if I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you. 
I will bear the blame before you all my life. Judah is now selflessly willing to accept his own misery rather than place others in misery. Judah's transformation is every bit miraculous as Joseph's transformation. He had gone from a dishonest deceiver who slept with a supposed shrine prostitute, which unbeknownst to him was his daughter-in-law, to an honest leader and spokesperson for the brothers, taking full responsibility for his actions and prepared to accept whatever consequences his actions deserved. Well, Joseph had heard enough to know that the brothers have changed dramatically from the day they sold him. They have passed the test. And this is in no small way due to Judah's transformation. Chapters 42 to 44 that we've been looking at this morning contain a strong theme of reversal. There are a whole bunch of events that mirror something of Joseph's experience. Joseph is giving his brothers a taste of what he had experienced to see how it felt and to test their character, including false accusation. Joseph was falsely accused of raping Potiphar's wife. The brothers are falsely accused of being spies. Prison time. Joseph went to prison on false charges. His brothers spent three days in prison on false charges. Sharing a meal. After Joseph was stripped, beaten and thrown into a pit, the brothers sat and ate a meal together. This meal was eaten in hatred and betrayal. When reunited, Joseph hosts a meal for his brothers where the food and wine was free-flowing. This was a meal eaten in grace and acceptance. Silver. We see the use of silver in differing situations. In chapter 37, Joseph was sold for 20 shekels of silver. Then in chapter 44, Joseph has his own special silver cup smuggled into Benjamin's sack of grain to falsely incriminate him, setting up a situation of potential betrayal by the brothers again. Tearing clothes. In chapter 37, after Jacob discovered that his son Joseph was gone, he tore his clothes in grief. In chapter 44, when Benjamin is found to have possession of Joseph's silver cup, the brothers respond by tearing their clothes, a remarkable sign of their guilt, sorrow, and grief. Power. In the act of betraying Joseph, the brothers wielded absolute power over Joseph. He was completely at their mercy and they offered him none. Now in these chapters, the power has shifted and is completely in Joseph's court. He uses that power to create a series of tests to see how his brothers would treat the other favoured son and if they were remorseful for what they had done. Whilst Joseph could have used his power to destroy his brothers as they had sought to destroy him, he ultimately extended to them mercy. Testing. Joseph went through an incredible ordeal which put his character to the test and he did not waver. Through a series of 
carefully orchestrated setups, Joseph put his brothers to the test to see how they would fare. In the end, their character stood tall under scrutiny. They had changed. Do you see all the mirroring events that happen in these three chapters? It's quite remarkable. Four times in these three chapters, Joseph's brothers bow down to him, fulfilling his dream. As we have previously discussed, Joseph prefigures Jesus. As God sent Joseph to Egypt to save his family, so God sent Jesus to the earth to save all people who place their trust in him from their sins. Jesus saves from more than just famine. Jesus saves people from their sins so that in him they can receive not just temporary life that grain provides, but eternal life in God's kingdom. As the brothers bowed to Joseph, so too one day all people will bow before Jesus Christ and confess with their mouth that he is Lord and Saviour. God rewrites stories. What really, what really stands out to me in chapters 42 to 44 is Judah's character transformation. He is a different man from who we met in chapters 37 and 38. He was clearly remorseful for what he had done. He demonstrates guilt, grief, sorrow, and ultimately repentance. He accepts, he accepts his sin before God and Joseph and is prepared to take responsibility for his actions. As spokesperson for all the brothers, we can also assume that he led them to a point of repentance and responsibility. On his deathbed, later in the story, Jacob will speak significant blessing over his son, Judah. And one of the things that he declares over him is that the obedience of the nations shall be his. Clearly, this is an allusion to power, authority, and influence, which will be used for good. It certainly has messianic overtones, which is most significant. Judah is part of the messianic line from which Jesus is born. If you turn to Matthew chapter 1, you're going to find Judah's name in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, it could have been any one of Jacob's sons that God chose to carry that messianic line through. He chose to use Judah. And the interesting thing is that the son that, that God chose to use of Judah's was Perez, the child that was born from illegitimate sexual relationships with his daughter-in-law. Dressed up as a shrine prostitute. That is the Messianic line. It's fascinating. God is into rewriting people's stories. At the end of chapter 38, we may have written Judah off as no good. But God wasn't finished with him. And he's not finished with you or I either. What is your story? What is the story that you tell others about yourself, that you continue to reinforce to yourself 
is your story? Do you tell the story of chapter 37 and 38 to yourself and to people? Or do you choose to tell the chapter of 42, 43 and 44 of what God did in your life to transform you from who you were in chapter 37 and 38? What's your story? What's the story that you believe about yourself? This is part of Judah's story. We all have this story in our lives. We all have a chapter 37 or 38. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, my friends, this is our story. Our story is one of transformation. But we continue to live here, so many of us. This is the story we choose to tell about ourselves. And we remain in bondage when the story we need to tell and believe is the story of transformation is the story of grace. It's the story of freedom. This is the story, my friends. Where are you today? Are you stuck in chapter 37 and 38? Is this the story you continually feed yourself? This is a comfortable place to be. The victim. It's a hard place to move from. It's a place of familiarity. Sometimes it's a place where we actually have to avoid uh, taking responsibility and start to make positive choices that actually line up more with this. What's your story? What's the story that you tell? God is way more interested in who you are becoming than who you've been. God's not finished with you yet. Don't let the story that you tell about yourself be the story of messing up, the story of sinning one too many times. Don't let the story of judgment and condemnation and guilt be the story that you continue to pour over yourself. Allow the story of God's grace in Jesus Christ be the story that speaks meaning and purpose and life into your spirit. Who are you becoming? We're all becoming someone. Our character is never just set. It's something that continues to grow, either for good or for bad. So whatever your character is, the choices that you make on a daily basis continue to affirm or deny that character. Let's choose to live in alignment with chapters 42, 43, and 44. And be more interested in who we're becoming than who we've been. In John 3.17, we read, For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn it. God didn't send Jesus to condemn you in chapters 37 and 38. He came to set you free so that you could live over here. 
If you survey the Gospels, you will very quickly see that when Jesus encounters people, he doesn't dwell on 37 and 38. He invites them into a new tomorrow, into an alternate future. doesn't mean that this doesn't exist. We all have scars. We all have regrets. We all have a story. And yes, that's part of it, and we acknowledge that. But we also stand with the cross right in the middle, and the cross changes everything. You see, the cross rewrites our story from 37 to 38. To 42 to 44. Does that make sense? God is into rewriting people's stories. He is into rewriting your story and my story. He is not finished with you yet. Your story is still being written today. God is more interested in who you are becoming than who you've been. May God rewrite each of our stories to increasingly reflect Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to finish with this, I read Psalm 18, 20 to 24 in the message version. And it's beautiful. God made my life complete when I placed all the pieces before him. When I got my act together, he gave me a fresh start. Now I'm alert to God's ways. I don't take God for granted. Every day I review the ways he works. I try not to miss a trick. I feel put back together and I'm watching my step. God rewrote the text of my life when I opened the book of my heart to his eyes. Amen. God is into rewriting our stories. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, this morning I invite my brothers and sisters along with myself to open our hearts to you. To stand in the light of your cross and all that was achieved through Christ's death and resurrection so that we could have our stories transformed from chapters 37 to 38 to chapters 42 to 44. That through your cross, Lord, you can take us from sin and shame and guilt to repentance and forgiveness and hope and promise and future. Lord, as you did this for Judah, would you do it for each of us? And I pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, you would stop us or prevent us from continuing to tell the story of 37 and 38 over ourselves and speak the story of 42 and 44 over ourselves because that's what you do. Thank you that you are here in our midst. Transform us by your Holy Spirit. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen.